from my friend Beth. She's having surgery this Friday. What's the one? Can you name her? Do you? She's both our friends. Mm -hmm. Do you just want me to? Yeah. Yeah. Can you? yeah. Why don't we just pray for her? Yeah. yeah. Speedy recovery. But she had, but she, but the surgery is this Friday. Yes. Yeah. All right. Would you play for Jen, please? Pelletier. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I have a friend, a church friend. Her granddaughter is 25 years old, and she has like stage three ovarian cancer. 25? Gosh. Gosh. What's her name? Cameron. Cameron. Hold on, you guys. My memory's just... Or anybody else? Yeah, my son. He's just really struggling. Good for you. With some addiction problems, so yeah. I appreciate all the prayers. No, no, no. Good for you. Bless your heart. Bless your heart. What's his name? Drew. Drew? Drew. Drew. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you, the gift of yourself this morning in the Mass, your words to us. Um, um, in the readings today, um, you asked us to be aware of differences between um, doing things according to the world and according to you. That if there's any jealousy or envy or um, undue <coughs> feelings, something, things all of us carry, that we know they're from the earth um, and sometimes demonic even. Um, that um, when our heart is one with your own, we bring something different, different a whole emotional different life. We also know that our emotions are obscure. They're so hard to see. You know, we, we think we see so clearly in our heads, um, but our hearts are so often beyond our reach. They're just depths <coughs> there. Um, they're depths into which we don't see very well. Um, but I'm grateful for the way in which poets help us to reach them. Um, but um, you ask us to be one with you, to bring something different, and that means so often learning to put ourselves away, to die to ourselves, um, so that our heart can be one with your own. Help all of us to do that, um, particularly when it's not easy. Um, there's something selfish in all of us. Um, I'm not aware of a book we've read that doesn't make it clear um, that the more we think we're okay, <laughs> the more blinded we are in our hirings that all of us, all of us are in sin. It's at the heart of Dostoevsky. Zosima says again and again, and we are the lowest of the lowest. It's only because he feels that, that he can love. The people who think they're smart um, don't see how blind they are. Give us all the courage and the humility to see ourselves as we are, to not be afraid um, to know that we'll meet you there um, so that we can bring more of you to what we do. It's an earnest prayer. Help us all to do that. Um, I ask it knowing how hard it is. 
we ask a special blessing on um, sorry on Beth um, and the surgery that she'll undergo at the end of this week. Be with her. Um, let the doctor's hands be sure. More importantly, give light to their minds. Doctors make mistakes all the time. Um, be with them in the procedure and be with her. Um, protect her, surround her with your protection. Whatever happens, let her find in this um, an approach to your death. You call us all to your cross. Um, it's good to have it repeated <laughs> because most of us maybe just for myself here, most of us are afraid of it. It's good to be pushed back um, because it's much easier to do what's comfortable for all of us. Be with her. Let this ordeal strengthen her and her faith. Now let it be a means of drawing her closer to you. Um, sorry. Um, um, sorry, what's going on? She's got stage three. Stage three, yeah. Yeah, Cameron. Yeah, be with Cameron. God, it's got to be difficult for parents to, when they think they're going to outlive their kids, to watch one of their children approach something that might be life-ending. Be with her. Watch over her. Again, let this difficulty draw her closer. We always think we're so strong until something hits us and we're reminded that the smallest thing can suddenly throw off our, our life and the comfort that we take. Be with her. Um, draw her closer to you in her heart and mind. Um, help her find the help that she needs and maybe more especially um, um, help her parents to find a consolation in you. Um, and um, for Drew, yeah, um, our families are in such, undergoing such trials today, all of us, with our kids. Um, um, you wouldn't allow this unless it were a grace or something that could be turned into a grace by what we do with it. Um, help um, be with Drew. Um, be with him. Um, help him find the help that he needs and be strengthened in his mind and heart. Um, let him be drawn closer to you as well through his difficulties. Most of all, be with um, his mom and dad and maybe especially his mother. Um, our hearts bleed sometimes for our kids. Um, I'd like to ask everybody here to remember something we've learned in our reading from Boethius. There is no bad fortune. We are in a fall. That's the effects of the, our loss of Eden, our disobedience of God. We are all here um, trying to go back. There's so much about the world that makes it want to offer itself like it's the answer to everything. That if only we would do this, we would all be happy. <laughs> Everybody in this room is too old and knows better. Um, help us all um, to know that you are offering something in the sufferings that we endure, that they're meant to help us love better than we would if we didn't go through them. So let a blessing be with all of us, with all those burdens that we carry inside. 
I offer these prayers. Sorry. In, sorry. Oh, for Jen. Be with Jen too, um, and Pat, her mom. Um, God. Um, women are so much more susceptible to cancer. Uh, it's just. Um, it's a great trial, I believe, for women in our age, um, because of everything that's going on. Be with Jen. Um, um, I know her faith is strong. Let it be a greater grace for her, because it is strong. Um, whatever happens. Um, something good can happen to us if we enter these difficulties trusting in you, even if we lose somebody. Um, help us to hold on to that in all that we're doing. Um, I offer these, we offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. <coughs> you were good to do that. You were. It's hard. You were good. <coughs> and good. Um, let's start. I was going to do, in fact, I think I'm going to do it. Um, I was going to do Jordan. But since some of you, some of you would miss it, I'm going to do Jordan anyway. Um, but we're going to do the wind power again too. Because it's one of my favorite poems and it's a good poem to do. If you don't have Jordan, don't worry, just listen. Because I don't think I gave it to you. This is one of Herbert's poems. Remember, Herbert was an Anglican poet. He's one of the metaphysicals. He was a contemporary of Dunn. Um, the beauty about those metaphysical poets is that um, they weren't sentimental. They just were not expressing their feelings, even though that's what the lyrics do. They take us into our mind and heart. They weren't just expressing feelings, although that's a major component of the lyric. They had a sense of the world because they had just left a Catholic world. This is the Renaissance. So a whole Catholic sacramental way of looking at the world was disappearing. So in their poems, they're called metaphysical because they're connecting things that ordinarily people don't connect. Whatever experiences they're undergoing are connected to a larger world, and they always make that apparent. Okay, so um, Herbert was one of the metaphysicals, and I'm reading a poem tonight called Jordan. And for him, as you know, the Jordan would be an image of the water of baptism. It was the river the Jews had to cross, was the river into which um, John took Jesus for his baptism. So. This is George Herbert, back in the 17th century, um, his poem called Jordan. There are two poems. This was the first one, Jordan 1. Who says that fictions only and false hair become a verse? Because you know that most poets tend, poets are lovers. They very often write their poems about the beloved, the woman they love. They're expressing their heart, whatever it is. And he's aware of that. Most lyrics are expressions of love. It could be mostly for the beloved, the woman. But it could be nature. It could be Wordsworth describing the beauty of nature. So he, he's aware of that when he writes this poem. Who says that fictions only in false hair become a verse? Is there in truth no beauty? Is all good structure in a winding stair? May no lines pass except they do their duty, not to a true but a painted chair. That all we can do is talk about the beauty around us. Is it no verse except enchanted groves and sudden arbor shadow coarse spun lines that you could spin out beautiful sounding lines about nature? There's an element of parody here. 
Must purling streams refresh a lover's loves? Must all be veiled while he that reads divines, catching the sense that two removes? Shepherds are honest people, let them sing. Because you, I think I've said this, but remember, the prototype, the origins of all lyric poets are shepherds. Watching their flight. Remember, they all sing, they, they play the lyre, and they're out there, they're poor. That's the, that, that's the origins of the lyric, the natural lyric. What was Christ? A shepherd. And he was the the word, the expression of all love. So traditionally, all lyric poets go back to the shepherd and ultimately to the word. Shepherds are honest people, let them sing. Riddle who list for me and pull for prime, I envy no man's nightingale. <clears throat> the beautiful songs these birds sing. I envy no man's nightingale or spring, nor let them punish me with loss of rhyme, who plainly say, my God, my King. God. All of his poems, remember, were celebrate were songs to God. He was an angler. Every every song is religious. It's, this is called Jordan. My God, my King. It's beautiful because what else can you say? You know, it's almost like all words will never come do justice to, my God, my king. Okay, even though you've heard it two or three times already. Let's do it one more. <laughs> Let's. The wind of her to Christ our Lord. Remember, Hopkins was a Catholic priest, 19th century, and he was a part of the Tractarian movement, converted, and at one point after his conversion was ready to burn up all his poems. He thought they were blasphemous, because once he gave his life to Christ, he couldn't imagine. His, his spiritual directors told him to knock it off, that there was, there was a calling in writing poetry, so he stayed with it, thank God. Remember, he's, he's an, one of the great innovators in the Lake tradition because after Shakespeare, it's as if there's not much to do with the, the iambic pentameter line with verse, with song. And Hopkins knows that, so what he does is go back to Old Anglican verse. And remember, Old Anglican verse, Beowulf, and Old English, always generally consisted of um, four beats of alliterative sounds. You all know what alliteration is. It's an it's a, it's a, it's initial um, consonant sound. The foul fiend um, took his sword and suddenly fumbled over the rock. You know, so, I mean, so generally it's, it's three, sometimes four, alliterative beats. There can be any number of syllables to a line. That's not so in, a, in Shakespeare's Iambic Pentameter. There's always ten syllables per line. It's a strict meter. Ba 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 ba. In um, alliterative verse, there can be an indefinite number of syllables, but there have to be four major beats. So what he did was incorporate old alliterative verse into modern idiom English, and he did something extraordinary with language that everybody recognized was new. So you can hear the strong alliteration here, okay? Now remember, um, the, the poem is um, written in what we know as the Italian sonnet. It's an octave, eight lines, followed by a sestet. Traditionally, the octave was um, the capturing of an actual experience, immediate. It's that experience in itself, whatever it was. The sestet is a reflection back on it. So it's the mind going back on something to see what was there. 
And in the morning, when he was out for his walk, he saw this wind hover just flying. It's a bird flying in the sky. Not expecting anything, not going into anything. He looks at the bird. He sees it as part of the daylight. Dolphins, um, uh, the daylight's dolphin. The dolphin is the prince heir, it's the heir to the kingdom. So he sees its connection to Christ, that it belongs to the, to the dawn, the rising of the sun, um, and it images Christ. Okay? It's the heir to the dawn, the sunlight rising. So for a moment he catches a glimpse, and then he will reflect, reflect on that moment. Go back and think, try to find out what was there. Okay? The wind tunnel to Christ our Lord. I caught this morning, morning's minion, Kingdom of daylights, a dauphin, dappled dawn, drawn falcon, in his riding of the rolling level underneath him, steady air. That's onomatopoetic. It's the words are imitating the movement. In his riding of the rolling level underneath him, steady air, and striding high there, how he rung upon the rain of a wimpling wing. High there, how he rung upon the rain of a wimpling wimpling wing in his ecstasy. Then off, off, forth on swing, as a skate's heel sweeps smooth on a bow bend. The hurl and gliding rebuff the big wind. My heart in hiding stirred for a bird, the achieve of the mastery of the thing. My heart in hiding, because he is so overcome by the moment that he's afraid of the desire that it awakens in him, because he knows his ultimate call is gone. So he's almost overwhelmed by the moment to see the beauty of what's happening. And then he reflects on it in the sestan. Brute beauty and valor and act, O air, pride, plume, here, buckle. And the fire that breaks from thee then a billion times, total lovelier, more dangerous, O my chevalier. No wonder of it. Sheer plod makes plow down silly and shine, and blue bleak embers, ah, my dear, fall gall themselves and gash gold vermilion. So he watches the bird and then he puts all these qualities together. Beauty, valor, act, pride, plume, here. And all, if, you, if you move with that line, you, 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 you feel yourself taken on by the line until the next line and then it suddenly stopped. Because there's an exclamation um, mark after buckle. Beauty and valor in air, oh air, pride, plume, here, buckle. Suddenly it stops. That's an, you, you almost never stop a line in the first word. It always goes on. He's stopping because at that moment he sees that everything gathered in that moment when the, when the bird flies in the sky, there's a moment when he hovers as if he's mastering the wind. He brings all of his um, powers together and buckles them, unites them. And there's two meanings to buckle, like a, a belt buckling, pulling things together, but it also means collapse, to break. So in, in that moment when the bird masters the wind, he sees all of the beauty, all of the, the stunning power of the bird mastering the air, and in that moment, buckling. So it's an image of Christ, our God, on the cross, taking everything of our human nature, mastering it, and then being crushed for our sins, and asking us to do the same. The beauty of this, I think, is the fire that breaks from thee a billion times to a lovelier, more dangerous, because he knows he can get caught up in earthly beauty. Oh, my chevalier. And then he goes on to say, no wonder of it. 
There's no wonder in this. Shouldn't be a cause of wonder. Sheer plod makes plow down cillian shine, and blue bleak embers amadir fall gall themselves. In. So there's no wonder. <laughs> this is what the Waltons. Um, I can't remember John's words, but I, I remember talking. He's talking about. There's no wonder in this. When a when a farmer does his work and plows the earth, you know that he starts out with clay earth. But as he works it, it begins to shine. It gets finer and finer. It's like it gets filter and richer. It's almost like it lets off a glow. So it's, it's, there's no wonder at it. The, the labor of a, of a farmer working with the earth participates in God's work. It brings this beauty out of the soil. Who's going to see that when everybody's mind's on money or you know, wealth or riches? Or... No wonder of it. Sheer plod makes plowed down cillian shine and blue bleak embers, Amadir. So in a fire, when the fire reaches that point where it, it, um, the, the wood burns into embers, there's that moment when the flames cool and the fire suddenly gives off this vermilion glow. So right at that moment when the fire is starting to go out, it produces its greatest beauty. So he's looking everywhere at nature, in this bird, in the work of a farmer, in a fire, and he's finding um, a participation in God's life. How can it be any different? I and mean, we just have so lost sense of it. If we had our eyes open at all, we'd know that every moment going on, we're doing something with God. Um, and we just don't see it. Just don't see it. So here, in just seeing a, a bird and reflecting on it, meditating on it, he's finding Christ on the cross. Okay. Any questions or comments or <clears throat> Marcy, I thank you. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks. Jeannie? No. I'm so glad you brought that up. Riding, when you go over that king riding striding, king wing, one four and two and three. Swing. Say again, Linda. You, what's your question? I'm looking at the rhyming. The oh. King, wing. Oh, right. Swing. Yep. Good for you. Thing. Right. But they're all over. So, 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 riding, so it would be A B B A, king riding, riding striding, king wing, A B B A, um, swing, thing. So it would be and gliding, hiding. So it would be A B B A, A B B A. That's in the octave. And the sestet would be here, billion, chevalier, cillian. Um, so A, B, A, B, A, B. Or C, D, C, D, C, D. Here, billion, chevalier, cillian, dear, familiar. So A, B, B, A, A, B, B, A, C, D, C, D, C, D. Which is a typical. The musical score of an Italian song. Now that you've asked, Linda, now that you've asked, next week you have to produce an Italian sonnet. <laughs> you can't, you can't just leave. <laughs> no, no, bring Italy into your poem. Bring Italy into your poem. I'm so glad. Now you can't just, you just can't leave it at technical knowledge. You have to do it. By the way, one of the, the first teachers that I had in, in, when I became a major at Berkeley when I transferred, when we did the poetry section, he asked us to imitate a poem. 
if you ever want to know how difficult it is to write a poem, take a poem like this, an Italian sonnet, and try to write one. And you'll find, it's like music composers, like trying to imitate Bach or take a, take a form and write in it and you'll see technically how hard it is to produce something really good. Okay, Dostoevsky. Um, very quickly. Um, very quickly. The last couple of weeks we've, um, we've gone back over the struggles between church and state because it was a really important theme, you know, in the opening parts of Brothers because it was um, when all of the men gathered at the monastery that they took up Ivan's article on church-state and argued it. And you remember the two positions there were either that the, um, state, the state assumes the power of the church and becomes absolute in its powers, or the church takes on state powers and assumes state powers into itself. And so many of the monks believed that the latter would be the case because of Christ's prophecy that he would, he would come at the end of the time. Um, and you know that that was important because it's the basis of so much of what goes on in, um, through the whole book. That there's this constant conflict between people that, that go to this issue. I just reminded you of some of the struggles that define the battles in the Middle Age. Um, Charlemagne, um, remember, was crowned by Pope Leo III in 800. In 1170, um, Henry had Becket murdered. We've experienced that. We read the, we read the play. Um, the investiture conflict took place in the 12th century. It's when the church separated itself out because kings were investing um, priests and so had power over and It was the issue with Henry um, in his struggle with Becket. And you know how angry ba um, Dante was with Boniface. Remember, Boniface was in hell, and he wasn't the only pope there. The, pope, the inferno was filled with popes. And the reason for putting him there is that he believed that um, in his epistle that Boniface claimed too much power for the church over the state. Um, Philip of France convened a, um, a council to capture Boniface. He actually did um, and took him prisoner. Um, the Babylonian captivity followed that, you know, for 1305, 1378. The, the curia was moved from Rome to um, France. So the, the French throne had power over the church. Um, um, you remember that Henry established himself as the head of the church, even on matters, and so in a sense um, created the grounds for the Anglican religion. So the source of that was a king assuming political power over a church. Elizabeth, in a sense, ratified, ratified that when she made the, uh, what's it called? The, Elizabethan compromise, the via media, the middle way between the Catholics and the Puritans. Calvin theology became entrenched then during that period. Um, we saw the effects of that in Scarlet Letter. Remember when we were reading it? We, I mean, it was it was dramatically worked out that you you can't. It's impossible to read that play without seeing the effects of it in a in a in the early American founding. Remember. Um, the belief then was that there were the predestined damned and predestined saved. And um, the basis for everything they did was faith and the authority for everything was scripture. That was the 
basis on which America was founded there in Salem. Anne Hutchinson, who believed that her faith raised her above the social community, um, believed that she didn't have to be accountable to the rules because she was moved by the spirit. They, um, they exiled her. They removed her from the community. They went through those trials, and you know that shortly after that, the witch trials took place. The majority of Puritans believed the same thing, that faith was the, the basis of everything they did in their lives. But they differed from Anne Hutchinson by believing that it was only if you conformed to the rules of the church that you could show your faith. So the evidence is whatever you did. And it was on that basis that they cast Hester out, because what she did was an indication that she was among the damned, the unsaved. So there's that black-white division that Hawthorne was dealing with. That was, and I, I believe, you know, I believe that those instincts are so whistled in America. It's partly what defines the American character, that black-white habit, black habit of thinking. And you know that Melville was breaking from it too. His, all of Moby Dick was an answer to that awful, that inhuman doctrine of predestination. Ahab is convinced that he's, that it, it's an, an inhuman doctrine that anybody could believe that, um, and he believes that there's this evil in the universe because of it, and he wants to strike back at it, he wants to get back at it. So the two most important novelists of the 19th, 20th century, the, in the 1850s, 19th century, were Melville and Hoff, Hawthorne, and both of them were dealing with religious questions in a way that was untrue of anybody in the Western world. Um, so this issue of church day permeates Dostoevsky Russia's dealing with it. It's impossible to understand what's going on then if we don't see this is a period of, of, um, of, of, a, of a nation becoming unsettled um, at its roots. Um, the important theme, is, is, as I've mentioned before, I'm, I'm going to elaborate on this next, next week because I'm, I'm going to really try to nail this down, but I've, I've said that you know, because of what happened with Peter centuries before, um, this great change took place in Russia. They moved the capital from Moscow, created this artificial city, and everybody, you can watch a people becoming unglued, that a whole traditional way of living was being lost, um, arbitrarily uprooted. It didn't happen gradually over time. It just happened um, um, artificially. Um, Peter approaches if he could simply take these ideas and impose them. So this is a time of tremendous upheaval in Russia, and it's a time in which um, people are, what Dostoevsky is showing us is that people are struggling to find out who they are, um, in some sense. Um, one of the most, two important things to take away from this, two things happen at moments like this, and I've mentioned it before. We know from reading literature, certainly across the tradition, at every, at every period in time when there are these um, radical changes, changes in paradigms, the way people look at themselves, it's a time when people go back and re-examine metaphysical roots. They go to ultimate questions to find out who they are. In each one of those moments, it's a time of tremendous upheaval, and it's a, it's a time of a flowering of a literature. It always happens. It happened in the Renaissance when the Christian Middle Ages were going. It happened in the 19th century when Darwin and Freud and Marx were all in vogue. Um, so traditional ways of looking at things were being um, really destroyed. 
um, the new theories were making man look at himself in a completely different way. And one of the points that I made last week, and I introduced it with this topic that I called Manipian Satire, whenever, um, whenever a traditional culture is undergoing radical changes, I want everybody to stop and think about it because I think it's so true. I think it's true in America constantly. Whenever a traditional society is undergoing radical changes, what do people do? If their codes of behavior are gone, they're being trashed, they can't depend on them anymore, what's right? On what basis do they judge their actions? And I went to that scene at the beginning, remember when uh, Musev and Fyodor were going back and forth? Musev is doing everything he can to show um, he belongs to the respectable class. All he does, I mean, he's not, he's not making a fool of himself, but ironically what he's showing us is what an idiot he is. He's shallow, um, he's living according to external appearances, he wants to do everything he can to dissociate himself from Fyodor, and what makes the irony graver is that Zosimo will have none of that. Zosimus says to Fyodor, don't be ashamed, stop being ashamed. He's not criticizing. So what we learn in that scene is how vain Musev is. He wants, to, he wants to be related with a respectable class as if to say, I wouldn't do those things, I'm better than that. So, I, and I suggested last week, that's an example of Manipian satire. It's a, it's a form of satire, so we're not just sat, it's not a satire of an individual person, it's a satire of an aspect of a culture, it gives a culture away. And I suggested last week that Fyodor is an image of something in all of us. He constantly makes a fool of himself, he's being a buffoon, he knows that, he even, he's open about it, as if to be open about it makes it okay. Um, he's also an image of the old man. He's not a catalyst, he's an actual character, but he's a truth image. He's revealing something in that world, how dislocated it is. Remember, he leaves and when he comes back, he's the one who, who um, condemns the priests. Comes back and says, you're all, you're all using the peasants, you're feeding off of them, you're exploiting them. And so he's a truth image, he's revealing something about that culture that most people don't want to see. Musev's too caught up in himself, his own pretensions. He wants to, he wants, so it's like the people in, in uh, Scarlet Letter. He wants to show that he's among the elite. So there is this Manipian quality running through the whole work. Um, people are lost. Codes of behavior are gone. People are trying um, to get ahead. So there's an element of pride in it. There's, this is, it's like Dante. He, he was such a good reader of Dante. It's like an element of pride and envy moves people. They want to be associated with the most progressive ideas. Because not to shows how backward they are, how bigoted. It's exactly the condition we're in today. Modern America with the progressives on one side and looking down on the, those who hold on to old beliefs. So we're watching a culture undergoing a radical change. Um, old Holy Mother Russia a basically agrarian, feudal world made up of people who were believers in Christ suddenly have to encounter um, intellectual systems from the West that are not religious, they're scientific. So we're watching this struggle play out everywhere among all the people 
and we can see that it's, it's working out between the sexes as well. Um, okay, let me stop. So we, um, those are just some of the major themes. I want to, I want to, I want to go to something now in the, I want to get to the passages leading up to the Grand Inquisitor, but I, but I want to look again at the novel. Just, do you all have that, do you all have that, um, that handout I gave you with the, with the narrative schemes on it, the circles, can you pull that out? Yep. I just have one going. We've got extras if anybody doesn't have a copy. I don't want to go into this in any depth, but I, I, I want to go back to some fundamental things before we go forward because it's a good thing to keep in mind. You can see that there are various narrative strategies to use to present a story, right? You can be a character in the story. It's the very first one on the top left, right? That's like Huck Finn. Huck Finn was a story, Huckleberry, you know, the adventures of Huckleberry Finn. He was a character in a story telling the story that he was involved in. So he's actually a character in the story. You can have an omniscient point of view. Most of Dickens' novels are, are presented that way. It's somebody completely outside the story telling the story in a way that makes it possible for him to present people as they are, objectively, but also get inside their consciousness. Is that clear? It's really important. One of the reasons for the modern novel, if you, if you look at Henry James and Conrad and Joyce and Virginia Woolf and others, is they thought that that was arrogant for a, a, a storyteller to take the position that he was omniscient, that he could know what was inside the character, seemed to them less than honest and not objective. So they, they had to make changes in the way they approached things to show skeptical element um, entering into the, to the Western mind in the way that it presented the novel. So um, what they did was very often present stories from a more limited point of view. So if you look at Conrad's story, if you, you've got Marlowe, who's a character telling a story about other people. Faulkner does the same thing. Let's say in the town, those of you who did the town a year ago. Faulkner would tell us, remember the story, the town was told from three points of view, from the point of view of Chick, Ratliff, and um, Gavin. Gavin. He, was, he was being true to nature because we only know what we learn from others and what we see ourselves. Um, so there are a num there's a whole variety of ways of presenting a story. Jane Austen tended to write her stories in a limited third person, and there was a good reason for that. So if you go down to the lower one, um, a narrator tells a story, but it's a limited point of view. She tends to tell it from one person's point of view. So if you've read Jane Austen, like Pride and Prejudice, yeah. you know that for the most part of the novel, we, see, we tend to see things from Elizabeth's point of view. Yeah. 
The reason for that is that that makes the turn more effective because we don't know any more than she does. We're caught up in the same kind of blindness she is. That's really important. We think we understand things. We see, tend to see things as she does. Suddenly, one-third of the way through the novel, or halfway, almost halfway, we suddenly realize, because of what Darcy does, he sends a letter back to her, answering her. He, he proposes marriage, and she refuses, and he has to answer her. He writes this letter describing things opening up a whole perfect perspective she did what's the one? it's an amber it's not a blow away here are you all following it's um darcy's letter suddenly exposes to a larger view than we had through elizabeth's eyes and that's important for us and for her because we pride and prejudice that's all what we realize is that it's our pride, because we think we know so much, that blinds us to things we don't know. That's the beauty of her novels. So every one of her novels is the action of the peripatia. It's the turn. She, she's absolutely at the center of her tradition doing that. She's showing that it's only when we come to a point of saying, I don't know, this is, goes back to Socrates in the cave, it's only when we have the humility to do that that we can really begin to see. Because up until that time, we're blinded by our own pride. So these are all various strategies that novelists use, okay? Now go back to the very beginning of the novel, Brothers. I just want to raise some questions here. First page, um, Alexei Kermazov was the third son of a landowner from our district. Um, Fyodor, well known as Zonday, and still remembered among us because of his dark and tragic death, which happened exactly 13 years ago, and which I shall speak of in its proper place. And we go on to know that he's not the hero of the book, and as a matter of fact, um, Alyosha is. But what does he do in that opening sentence? Alexei was the third son of a landowner, Fyodor, well known. Um, in his own day, still remembered because of his dark and tragic death, which happened exactly 13 years ago, in which I shall speak of in its proper place. What do we know just from the opening line of that novel? Theodore said, I shall speak. There's a narrator, and we learn a lot about him. I've said before, he's very conscientious because he tends to be very faithful to the actual language characters use. He doesn't change things to fit his language which is one of the qualities of the old epic. He's respecting the individual, so what we get is those, word, those exact words of that individual. Um, that's one thing. We also know that it's 13 years since this thing happened, and we also know that there's some tragic event. Do we know what it is? We do not. We don't. We have to read on to find out. Well, we know it's a dark and tragic death. I know, but we don't know... So what he's doing in the very beginning is um, introducing a detective story element to the novel. We have to read on to find out what's going on. And if you know, it's, I mean, if, if you're well along, you know that often the narrator, the narrator will say, um, and this is what he reported when the time came. So that we know that we're getting a report from a retrospective point of view, that, that something came out later 
And we will find out what it is as the novel progresses. So he's constantly saying that. I could, you know, I could pick out a dozen right here easily. If you halfway in the novel, he'll say, "We learn this later," and um, and it'll become an important point shortly. You know, I mean, so he's constantly reminding us that something happened. So he already knows the end, but and it happened 13 years ago. So he's removed from it. But he's presenting it, trying to be faithful to what happened, while he's doing it in a way that keeps up a suspense. So in doing that, he's, I mean, it, it just seems to me he's mastering what he does. That's so, the retrospective point of view? Yeah, Linda, the, he keeps talking about characters mm -hmm. who, who, who make clear what happened later. And I'll get to that in a moment. So something's already happened. And he's aware of it, but he's not letting us know. So we're, we're, we, we have to keep putting things together, knowing that there's something there to be known. And we will eventually find out. What? It's a teaser. Here, one of the things I want to just make clear, we've talked often about the, the knowledge that literature gives us, and this is so important. Remember that one of the things that novel gives us is Plato said In the Republic Plato says because he's talking about the Iliad and you remember Homer narrates the Iliad Homer's invoking the muse, Calliope, to tell the story through him, so everything comes through him. Plato says there are two forms of speaking in art, all art. One of them is diegetic, where the poet speaks in his own voice, and one is mimetic, where each of the characters speaks in his voice. This is pure lyric, this is pure drama, right? Um, who was what form of mimesis, of imitation, was being used in the window? Hmm? Name it. Diegesis. Yeah? Diegesis. Yes, right. Diegetic. It's mimesis. It's, dig it's diegesis. It's the poet speaking in his own voice, right? Because we know in the Iliad, Homer speaks in his own voice. But then he will represent a character, Achilles, speaking as his. That's mimetic. When Shakespeare presents a play, what's the form of address? The form of imitation. It's mimetic. Each of the characters is speaking. There's no narrator in Othello or Merchant of Venice or any of the plays that we've read, right? There's no narrator. Is everybody clear? So drama gives us a world objectively. People are presented in whatever it is they're doing. It's not being filtered through a narrator. In lyric, whatever we get comes through the speaking voice of the person. So all lyric introduces us to the interior of a person. All mimesis, drama, introduces us to the outside, what they're doing. And everything we learn about the inside from what they say and do. That's drama. Okay? Now, what happens when you combine them? 
a mixed mode, you've got narrative because it combines both. There's a storyteller telling a story about somebody, but he does it through his own voice, and we learn things about him while he does it. Jane Austen is a mixed mode. She's she's a narrative. She's telling a story. Okay, is that clear? So the the point I want to make here is when we talk about the knowledge that that poetry gives us. In lyric, we're we're helped to go into the interior. It's about the subjective interior, what's invisible. If, you, if we were standing on a meadow watching this man, mid-19th century, walk in the early dawn hours and look up and see a bird, would we know what's going on inside that man? No. But if we read his poem, is there any way not to know that he was feeling and seeing something we didn't see? So in a lyric, we're introduced into the interior of a person. In drama, we're left with the exterior world to experience what people say and do, so we know objectively what's going on, and very often we can infer we, we're allowed to go into their interior from what they say and do. But in narrative, you've got a mixed mode. You've got somebody telling a story about another, the narrator telling a story about Alyosha, okay? And we, we, we come to know things about the storyteller by the way he does the things he says. So in this form of literature, in narrative, we're allowed to bring outer and inner worlds together. Give me a form of knowledge that does that as well. In this book, we've got a poet describing a moment when an entire country is being radically changed. It's undergoing radical changes. He's allowing us to go into the interior through the poet, what he's, the narrator, what he's saying, and also experience these people that represent every class of society in that world. So inner and outer worlds are coming together. It's one of the special things that only poetry can do. And with the masterful people, Dostoevsky, Melville, say Faulkner, we are taken to depths that um, other people don't risk. Just don't risk. That's what Dostoevsky's here. And what's at the root of this story that he's telling us are all these questions about spiritual evil and um, modern technological rational changes. Everybody's dealing with questions of faith. Everybody's dealing with matters of love. And we're experiencing a whole people undergoing this great trial that's taking place here, okay? Um, so, there's a strong detective element. He's presenting it in order to keep us reading, that there's something going to happen. Um, um, and it, it ultimately goes to a question of justice, justice and love. Now remember I gave you this image of Manipian satire that it's like a fractured mirror. That Manipian satire is different from just satirizing a person. It's a mirror that looks out on a whole nation, but it's fractured, so we get different aspects of it. Theodore is the one person, I think, in whom most of those fractures are most visible. He's the old man. He looks back to an old way. And interesting, I'm going to make 
try to make this even clearer next week. Interestingly, all the changes that take place that move us directly towards the end happen when Theodore is killed. It's a marking point. It's like a moment of grace. When that old man is killed, something else happens. We're going to see aspects of people's characters that we wouldn't have seen until that moment. So he he's, a, he's a truth image. He's not just a catalyst. He is a person. He's a real person. But there's this parodic quality to him. Um, remember I told you that there are, um, we see that same parodic character in uh, the titles of the chapters. A nice little family is the entertainment. That's, you know, that's the open, a nice little family. It's like American. It's like the American description of suburbia. We go to suburbia and have this nice little family. That's the big American hypocrisy. Um, uh, because we're not in suburbia very long where we, when we turned it into a, uh, drugs, adultery, what doesn't go on. Um, a seminarian careerist. That's the description of, um, what's his name? The, Rakuten. Stinking Lizadetta. Smerjitab with a guitar. That's such a parody. It makes him sound like he's this person who's our, I'm going to look at it. It's always interesting to talk to an adult child. There's a, a note of parody, of irony in all the times. <coughs> he's asking us to see that things aren't the way they seem. But what's going on in this world is that people want to seem to be better than they are, like Miusov. He's so pretentious. Um, and at the more we watch him, the more we realize that he's not who he wants to seem to be. So let me stop. I'd like to go to the text and try to try to get us to the um, Grand Inquisitor quickly. But any any questions or there's a lot going on in the narrative structure that you want to just be aware of as you read. That, that we're being asked to bring two worlds together, an inner world of so many of these characters, what's going on inside of them, particularly Alyosha and Ivan and uh, Dimitri. They're very different, and they're, they each have their own unique turmoil. There's, there's something spiritually unsettled in all of them. So we're allowed to watch a whole culture struggling with a problem while we go into the interior. It's just a rich kind of knowledge. It changes the way we look at, we look at things. So, so any drama is the whole church or the outside of us? The whole thing is a drama. The, 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 the drama, the drama is the, the mimetic element of this is just characters speaking in their own voice, whether it's Dimitri or Alyosha or you know any of them, Theodore, Musa. Mimetic means somebody speaking in his own voice. That's all. Jesus is the, the author speaking in his, the narrator speaking in his. And narrative is a mixed mode. It combines them. The author is telling us a story. We get... This might make it clear. One, you know, one of the changes that took place after the 19th century, because people were beginning to realize there was something wrong with the early English novel and the way they presented it. One poet, one Ford Maddox Ford, a, a novelist, wrote a story that, that created this sense of the unreliable narrator. Because you get this story, and you're done with it, and you suddenly realize you had been fooled to believe anything he said because the whole thing is dishonest, and you don't know it until the end. 
we, those of you who have been with me for a while, if you remember Eudora Welty's Why I Lived at the Post Office, it was this young woman who complained about her family and finally moved out. She has nothing but complaints about her family, says all these bad things, and then you realize when you look at it that you can't believe anything she's saying, that she's the one who's causing the problem and she can't see it. So the whole, the whole, I mean, as you, you know, if you were going to go into therapy or, you know, you'd at some point you'd hope you'd be asked to take a look at yourself just to, but, but we know that so often when people tell us things, we're left with a struggle of discerning how much is real, how much not. Um, the, the narrative here is, is dealing with those issues, um, particularly at a time of unrest where people are having a hard time knowing what's right and what's wrong. Remember what I said, if radical changes are going on, how do you know it's right? Let me put this differently, because this goes right to the heart of the novel. Because I believe this goes on all the time. I think that's America. It's been America for the last 200 years, my personal belief. But let's say radical changes are going on. Remember I said it happened in Japan, it happened in India, it happened in Russia. It happened in Ireland in the 19th century. It happened in the South after the Civil War. A whole way of an agrarian feudal world was wiped, wiped away. And the northern world came in and imposed itself in a southern way lost. What came out of that? This great outpouring of literature. Eudora Welty, Flannery O'Connor, Catherine Porter, Alan Tate, Faulkner. I mean, it's just extraordinary. That's not an accident. When you're settled in a way of life, you take it for granted. You just live. When that life is being thrown away, violently attacked, something happens. You do something. In all of these, in all of these cultures, historically, this has been true, historically, that what it produces is not only this great literature, but what I called it a sort of testimony to memoria, to memory, that you're, all literature comes through a memory of something recalling carrying the past forward. But let me ask this question, because it's a, I don't want to buy, if, if radical changes are taking place and people put on these personas, they're not quite sure who they are, it produces a Fyodor, who, who is a buffoon, who, who's making a, you know. And remember, it, what, what's telling about that scene, Zosima is not bothered by it at all. I mean, the, the amazing thing about that scene is, if we put it together, we're seeing the difference between somebody who's who's trying to be pretentious to show how good he is, because he keeps saying, I want nothing to do with him, he's doing this, I'm, you know, while Theodore is making a fool of himself. And Zosima says, don't be ashamed. He's not troubled because he's not caught up with social pretensions. That's not what motivates him. So here's the question. If you're living at a time when radical changes are taking place and you don't know what to do, old codes are being destroyed. What do you do? Where's your center? There's only one center that never changes. What is it? Your spiritual center. Yeah. And it's not just God for us, because every God that's, that we have any knowledge of has always been removed from us. There's only one God that came down and took on our form, a human form. So the interesting thing about this novel is when that center is lost, is there anybody in this book holding on to that center? So no matter what changes are, 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 you know, people are undergoing, 
no, no matter how much they're thrown off or disturbed or angry or violent or unsettled or Ivan not knowing or Dimitri wanting to get his, you know, no matter what's going on, the question is, in the face of all these changes, no matter what historical period you're in, how close are you to something that doesn't change? That's the amazing thing that Christ did, or one of the amazing things that he did. That's why Zosima is such a central pit figure for this whole novel, and Alyosha, who looks to him. Because they're holding on to a holiness that the rest of the world is, is losing. So, how close, how close, you can't read this without feeling how people are struggling to love. Dimitri, Katrina, Ivan and Katrina, Grushenka, Alyosha, Dimitri. Um, all the people are struggling, they're, they're tormented by their loves. They're all struggling. How do we look at that in the context of this whole story? It's a nation that's, un that's becoming unsettled with these changes coming in. It's an amazing work. It, to me, it's just, it's such a reflection on what's going on in contemporary America, the world, so. Okay, let's, any questions or comments or? I want to, I want to get up to the, um, to the Grand Inquisitor, but any? What? You biting your tongue? I don't, then let me hear you on because I don't want you to bite your tongue. Here, take a look at two. <laughs> and page two, 215. Let's very, very quickly, I want to try to cover these quickly because I want to get to the Grand Inquisitor. Alyosha comes to visit um, Lisi and he tells her the story of, um, of what had just happened with the captain. Remember that the captain's son, Lucia, um, had thrown rocks at him, and he didn't know why. You remember Captain Snedrov, um, his son, Ilusha? Alyosha goes to their house to ask pardon for his brother, because Dmitri, remember, pulled him by the beard and humiliated him. And, and because um, he was, and the son witnessed it, and um, the, the children at, at school doing what children do, they just were merciless and taunting him and um, embarrassing him. And he was so angry that he threw stones at, um, at Alyosha, and Alyosha learned what was wrong and went to the captain's house to, to apologize and offer him money. On page 215, he's with Lisi, now remember, one of the things that's going on here is, is what I suggested earlier. One of the defining qualities in almost all the characters of this book, all, without a rule, without a, except maybe Zosima, is the strain, the tension, the tension, I'm going to underline this, the, the strain, the tension of keeping up appearances. Pride, the pride and envy driving it. We see it in Musev, a lot. In some ways, we even see it in the monks. Remember when Zosima dies and the, the odor of corruption comes up? Mm -hmm. they're, all, they're all ganging up on him, 
because it gives them a, an occasion to show that he was wrong and they were right. So this pride and envy is everywhere present in the, in the novel. Nobody escapes it. And it's present in Lisa, and in some ways, not as much in Alyosha. And Alyosha's recalling the, the, the scene involving the captain, and he says on 2.15 at the top, I made a mistake there, but the mistake has turned out for the better. What, what, she says, what? Go down. First he was offended because he'd been too glad of the money. Remember, he offers him, Alyosha offers him money because he knows they're impoverished. Um, the captain was humiliated by what his brother did, and he wants to help, and he sees how poor they are. So when he leaves, he offers him money, and you remember what happened. Initially, the captain was grateful, and then it's like he suddenly became paralyzed. And he realized that if he took the money, he would humiliate himself further, so he refuses and walks away. Steps, dumps on the money. First he was offended because he'd been too glad of the money in front of me. Um, if he'd been glad, but not overly so, if he hadn't shown it, if he'd just given himself airs as others do when they're accepting money and making faces, then he might have stood and accepted. But he was too honestly glad. That is, his pride got in the way. He was so overjoyed for a moment, glad to be helped, but then his pride clicks in and he, he's aware of the adding to the humiliation and he turns. Um, Alyosha goes on, all the while he was speaking then his voice was so weak, weakened, and he spoke so fast, so fast, and he kept laughing with such a little giggle, or else he just wept, really he wept, he was so delighted. And he spoke of his daughters and the position he would find in another town. And just when he poured out his soul, he suddenly became ashamed that he had shown me his own soul like that. This is so crucial to everything that's happening here. He immediately began to hate me. He's the sort of man who feels terribly shamed by poverty, but above all, he was offended because he had accepted me too quickly as a friend and given in to me too soon. She said he acknowledges that it was a mistake, but then he goes on to say something good will come out of it because he refused the money, but now when Alyosha goes back to give it to him because he did refuse it, he won't suffer any dishonor. On page 216, um, Alyosha says in a sort of rapture, and this time he will take it. Lisa clapped her hands as if in joy. That's true. I suddenly understand it so terribly well. Ah, uh, Alyosha, how do you know all that? So young. And now watch what she does. She's speaking to him, and her, she shifts person. Right? I suddenly, ah, uh, Alyosha, how do you know all that? So young and already knows what's in the soul. I could... So young, and he already knows what's in the soul. I could never have thought that up. He says it's no nothing. Why is she doing that? Do you see that she shifted from a direct address to speaking of it as if he's an object? He? She does that through this dialogue at the top of 217. Listen, Alexei, isn't there something in all this reasoning of yours, I mean of yours, no better, of, no better, of ours? I'm, I'm just going to read this, and I'm, like, I'm going to go through a couple of bad. No better of ours. Isn't there some contempt for him, for this wretched man, that we are examining his soul like this, as if we were looking down at him? He goes on to say, no, least but for myself I consider that my soul is petty in many ways, and his is not petty. On the contrary, it's very sensitive. No, least. There's no contempt. Go down. Um... 
she reaches a point down below she's, where, you remember, she sends the letter, and then when she sees him next time, she has to pretend that she wasn't serious in the letter. She said, I, I made it up. I wasn't serious. Come here, Alexi, she went on. Give me your hand. So listen, I must make you a confession. Yesterday's letter was not a joke. It was serious. She hid her eyes with her hand, put down. Suddenly she seized his hand and impetuously kissed it three times. Alisa, isn't that wonderful? Alyosha claimed, exclaimed joyfully. And I was completely sure that you wrote it seriously. He was sure. Just imagine. She suddenly pushed his hand aside without ever letting go of it. I kiss his hand and he says, how wonderful. But her reproach was unjust. Alyosha, too, was in great confusion. 218. I wish you'd always like me, but I don't know how to do it. Alyosha, dear, you are cold and impudent. Just look at him. He was so sure, so good as to choose me for his spouse, and I left it at that. He was quite sure I wrote to him seriously. How nice. It's impudence. That's what it is. It goes on. Um, he asks if he can kiss her, and he doesn't. She says, let's put it off because we don't have to do it yet. Go down a little bit. Um, Your soul is lighter than mine. Above all, you are more innocent than I am, he says of her. And I've already touched many, many things. Ah, oh, you don't know it, but I too am a karmaza. What matter if you laugh and joke and at me too? On the contrary, laugh. I'm so glad of it. But you laugh like a girl, and inside you're like a martyr. Because he says, the fact that you would say, isn't it wrong to analyze a person because it implies a contempt? He says, only a martyr could say something like that. Um, because as if you're aware of a danger to yourself. I could go on with this, but I, I want to stop. You know that shortly after this, they're going to engage themselves openly. She's going to declare her love for him. He will declare his love for her. And they promise that they will marry. And we know from what he says that that will be years off. He's got things to do. Um, but what do we learn about this couple? Because if you watch the couples in the story, you know that um, Katrina is passionate with Dmitri. He with her. Um, Dmitri is with Grushenka. Ivan loved Katrina. He leaves her, he thinks he's free of her. But here in this scene between the two of them, they're betrothed. What are some of the things we learn about the two of them from the way they carry on with each other? What's going on? Yeah. 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 But describe the spirit behind that. Um, I think it's kind of fun, frivolous, frolicking spirit. I yeah. don't know that they're evil. Mm -mm. No. No. There's no evil. Does anybody have the sense that they made a breakthrough? That they passed? Because, same thing. Before, she wouldn't admit that the letter was serious. She pretended that it wasn't. And here what takes place makes it clear. She finally says, it was serious. And he says, I already knew that it was. So it's a breakthrough. And then, what changes between them there? The moment Yeah. <coughs> About what? Each other. And themselves. <coughs> About what? Name it. Their feelings for each other? Who they are? Yeah. Is, I think the issue here is that to say you love somebody makes you vulnerable. 
It puts you in a, because you can be unloved, they may not love you back. She's afraid to declare that to him. She writes him a letter that she means. It's face saving. Mm -hmm. Who wants to be vulnerable? Because the minute you say, I love you, they don't love you back. If somebody doesn't love you, because we, what, what, wait, what happened when, when Dimitri is going to give the money to Katrina um, and he said, um, if I came the next day to propose to her, she'd refuse me. What did he do? He went mad. The thought that he, that is the thought that he would make himself vulnerable and that she would treat him like, like a dog, so pricked his pride that, it, I mean, it colored so much of what he did afterward. So we're watching couples um, hide behind their pride. I mean, think, set this against Zosimov and what's going on with Musov and Fyodor. Musov wants, to, I mean, he, he, he displays this pride of um, wanting to seem better than he is, you know. Um, and, but in, in Lisa here, be, because of what um, Alyosha has shown her about his care for the captain, that she sees how caring he is, and how intelligent makes her trust him. She says, how could you be so, and he says, I'm not. He says, I'm petty next to him. So she's seeing in this man a real humility, and it makes an opening for her to be honest, just when, be honest about herself. So what we're seeing, and then she starts talking about him in third person as if to distance him. You know, he does this, he does this, he's right in front of her. But gradually, they both come around to a point of admitting their weaknesses and not being afraid of them. So we're watching a couple grow in humility to declare their love. He wants to kiss her. She says, let's wait until they don't know how. I mean, what a, what a <coughs> how many people are a will, imagine a sexual relationship, a date on a car, and a guy saying to a girl, can I kiss you? And then saying, I don't know how, or the girl saying, I mean, what guy would want to admit that he doesn't know how to kiss? There's a real face saving in the way. And they both get past it, and it allows them to come together in a kind of humility that we've not seen in any of these other relationships. Sorry, Mark. Did well, agree completely. Um, but one of the things I'm, and I don't know if it's me reading it wrong, but it seems that a lot of this interplay of relationships and saving face and pride and envy, they feed each other, either knowingly or unknowingly, or maybe <coughs> unconsciously. But they feed, you know, so, so there's this, it just, it's a circle of pride and envy that nobody says anything, but they just keep feeding each other, both sides. Well, they do say. In almost all of the, in, in, yep. in almost all of the characters and all of the conversations, yep. Yep. they just keep feeding each other. Yep. No, I agree. That's, I think it's an accurate description. I think what's happening here in this scene, however, is different for the reason I've said, that, that pride and envy, I mean, it, if you look, it marks as a generalization, it's pretty accurate, it's pretty faithful to what goes on generally. I think because of that fact, this scene stands out even more. And, and we're aware of a breakthrough that, that she didn't want to admit that she wrote the letter because she did not. She couldn't get past her pride. And so what we're watching in this scene is this couple um, allowed them, allowing themselves to be vulnerable and the change that it makes in their character. What, but I mean, stop and think. What do you have to be afraid of then when that moment happens? If you've done it. Um, so anyway, the two are betrothed they, they, um, and in humility. 
She trusts him, he trusts her. It ends interestingly with her, again, confessing a sin. She said, I know my mother's listening. She's a pe- she always spies on me. Mm-hmm. It's not a good thing. And she acknowledges it, and so does Alyosha. Um, and um, we know it again when Alyosha leaves because the mother knows exactly what was said. And Lisa says, when, when we grow up, I'm going to spy on our daughter if we have one. And he says, it's not good. Um, and she says, I'll do it, and I'll do it with you. And, and he, 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 um, he responds to say, it's not good, on page 220. Do then, you won't spy out anything of the sort in me, Alyosha laughed. That is, he's saying, spy me all you want. There's nothing to discover there. Um, um, and she says, of course I'm wrong and you're right, but I will eavesdrop anyway. I will certainly with the greatest pleasure only in the most important things. If you disagree with me about the most important things, I still do as duty tells me. He says, even if you do this, he's going to do what he knows is right. So the two of them are, are learning to be frank while they're still offering themselves vulnerably to each other. And it's on that note that they will engage. And then the mother, this is beautiful. What, what she presents when she greets Alyosha at the door ready to say goodbye, she says, stay away from my daughter. She's not ready for you yet. And she wants to see the letter. And he says to her, no on both counts. He knows that she has no business doing that. He's not angry. He's not. He's just saying. So we've got a contrast between the possessive love of a mother, you know, her not wanting to let go of her daughter, and the love that we've just seen this couple exchange with each other. On 2.23, Alyosha goes off looking for Dmitri, and he comes to, I just want to read a couple of lines here. He comes across Smerdyakov, who is wooing this woman with a guitar. On page 2.26, look in the middle of the page. So, Smerdyakov is strumming this guitar. It was indeed Smerdyakov dressed up, pomaded, pomaded, perhaps even curled in patent leather shoes, the guitar lay in the... You, so he's got grease on his hair. It's greased, like, uh, what's his name in the dance? John Travolta. Oh, yeah. You know, in gre- grease. <laughs> so he, he has all of the appearances of somebody from Europe. She says, um, page 224, he's serenading her with this, and he says, middle of 224, it's nothing. Verse is no good. You're so smart about everything. How did you ever amount to all that? The female voice was growing more and more caressing. I could have done better, miss, and I'd know a lot more if it wasn't for my destiny ever since childhood. I'd have killed a man in a duel with a pistol for calling me lowborn because I came from Steaking Lizaveta without a father, and they were shoving that in my face. Going over the top of 225. Can a Russian peasant, imagine, because this is what we've been talking about across a culture, an entire culture. Can a Russian peasant have feelings comparable, comparably to an educated man? With such a lack of education, he can't have any feelings at all. Ever since my childhood, when I hear this wee bit, I want to throw myself at the wall. I hate all of Russia, Maria. Um, she says she's fascinated with duels and would love to see one, and he says, no, you wouldn't. <laughs> Um, 225, go down a little bit. You And you yourself are just like a foreigner, just like a real noble foreigner. I'll tell you so for all that I'm blushing. He says when it comes to depravity, the lower, higher classes are no different. Because he's a li- Here, if Fyodor is 
a mere refraction of this quantity that I'm describing, a, a truthful refraction. He shows us something that all people carry. Smirjikov is the reverse image of that from the perspective, I'm going to say it, from the perspective of almost an absolute evil. That he personifies this wanting to be um, something he's not. Um, this what I'm calling this strain that, that, uh, of keeping up appearances of trying to be somebody or not. She says, you're a foreigner, you're just like a foreigner. And she's, she's complimenting. She goes down below, she says, I think duels are so nice, how so miss? And she goes, I, she says, I'd like to see one. And he said, no, she doesn't. I don't want to go on with that, but um, from that point, Alyosha goes and he meets Ivan at the tavern, and it's there that he tells him the, the uh, Grand Inquisitor story. Let me stop here. Does everybody have any questions about Smerdyakov as a person? Both, if you've read, I'm, I don't, don't give away the ending if you know it, but any questions about him, or do you have a good sense of who he is, just in terms of the way characters show themselves off by how they relate to other people? I can't help but look at how he was born and the situation he was born in, and that's going to influence his character. So yep. to say he's evil, I kind of like, you know, he had a lot of, I don't know, he had a lot of stuff to deal with when he was. I know, what I know. What an awful. Yes, here, just even to, to back that up. And, and it raises a question. I mean, the, the tendency of the modern world, because there are hardships, and the, the tendency of the modern world, the socialists say, if we had a socialistic world, we would get rid of evil. So the discrepancies of having been marginalized will be taken away. There will be no more evil. Because they, their, their understanding of evil is that it's produced by your environment. Even though that we know lots of people come out of horrible environments. Okay. So we're back to that, that issue. Remember when we raised it last week, I, the real issue, because it wasn't just state and church. It was. The argument at the center of that was, remember, I go back because this is crucial for the whole book. Two sides on state-church relations. The issue for everybody there that, that um, Zosima nailed was, how do you correct the sinner? Will the state apparatus be sufficient to reform a man once he's committed sins? And the church says, no, because only God, we're back in square letter, only God can heal sins. So their argument was it's only when the church will absorb the state and it has the power to excommunicate a sinner that there will be enough motivation for a sinner to come in to correct himself. Other than that, go through the state, you can torture him all you want. Like, you know. So there's this issue, it's the crime and punishment theme here in Brothers, because you know that it's going to lead to a murder, there's going to be a trial. And here's Smerdyakov who was, um, and he's worse. He happens to have been born at a time when there's a culture wanting to make itself better, to take on all these pretensions. Go to rebellion. Ivan is describing to Alyosha his beliefs, he says, and he makes this clear, he believes in God. That's not a doubt of it. What he can't accept is God's world, because there's too much evil in it. It's the Job question. How could, how could a good God allow evil at this level? Okay. Go on over on page 238. 
he's talking about the atrocities of some of the Turks, which means Islamic. By the way, a Bulgarian I met recently in Moscow, Ivan went on as if he were not listening, told me how the Turks and um, Circassians here in Bulgaria have been committing atrocities everywhere, fearing a general uprising of the Slavs. They burn, kill, rape women, children. They nail prisoners by the ears to fences and leave them like that until morning. Go down. Indeed, people speak sometimes about the animal cruelty of man, but that's a terrible injustice and offense to animals. No animal could ever be so cruel as man. Go down. These Turks, among other things, have also taken delight in torturing children, starting with cutting them out of their mother's wombs with a dagger and ending with tossing nursing infants up in the air and catching them on their bayonets before their mother's eyes. He describes the one mother um, with, a, with a child in her arms and putting the gun and laughing and teasing her as if he's not going to do it. It's just a joke. And then pulls the trigger and, and blows the brains out of the child. But now going over, that's the Islamic world, 239, middle of the page. I have a lovely pamphlet translated from the French telling of how quite recently, only five years ago, in Geneva, a villain, a, a villain and murdered name, a murderer named Richard was executed, 23. And it goes just to what you're saying. He, he was born impoverished, he was treated cruelly as a kid. He grew up among them like a wild beast. The shepherds taught him nothing. On the contrary, by the time he was seven, they were already sending him out to tend the flocks. And of course, none of them stopped to think or repent of doing so. On the contrary, they considered themselves entirely within their right. For Richard had been presented them to, as an object. They did not even think it necessary. That is, the discrepancy between the wealthy and the poor entitled the rich to use people we see that over and over in Dostoevsky. The, remember, the serfs were freed. It, it's a time when these tremendous changes are taking place. So at the top of 240, he lives like a monster, and finally he ends up by killing an old man and robbing him. He was caught. Go down on 240. All of Geneva was stirred, all of it pious and philanthropic Geneva. This is a Christian world. You are our brother. Grace has descended upon you because he confesses his crime um, repents of it, which is the condition of the Bible. So all of the Genevans, these, these are Calvinistic Christians, are praising him for his conversion. Yes, yes, Richard, die in the Lord. You have shed blood and must die in the Lord, though it's not your fault. that You knew nothing of the Lord when you envy the swine. Go down. So the last day came, limp Richard weeps, and all the while keeps repeating, this is the best day of my life. I'm going to the Lord. Yes, cried the pastor of the judges. They keep doing this. And so covered with kisses of his brother, Brother Richard is dragged up to the scaffold, laid on the guillotine. His head is whacked off in brotherly fashion for as much as grace has descended upon him too. No, it's quite typical. This little pamphlet was translated into Russia by some Russian Luther, Lutheranizing, Lutheranizing uh, philanthropist from high society. Remember, he's attacked Luther, implicitly Calvin, because both of them, had the effect in their theologies of taking away from the sacraments, that is, from the miraculous. So we've got in this chapter Ivan's um, struggle with God. He, he, he isn't str struggling so much with God. It's that he, he can't stand God's world because of what people do to each other. Um, a bottle of 242, I'd like to go there, but it, it describes once again this this um, general who 
um, who, one of whose servants, a little boy, ended up throwing a rock and hurt his dog's <coughs> paw. And he wanted to find who it was that hurt his dog, and when he discovered that it was the boy, he had the boy take his clothes off, go out into a field with all the hunters and their dogs around. Top of 243. Um, where's my favorite dog, Limpy? And he says, he finds out, take him. They took him at dawn, they undress him. The house serfs are gathered for their edification, the guilty boy's mother in front of them all. Boys let out of the lockup, a gloomy, cold, misty autumn day, a great day for hunting. The general orders them to undress the boy. The child is stripped. He's shivered. He's crazy with fear. He doesn't dare make a peep. Drive him, the general commands. The huntsman shout, run, run. The boy runs, sick him, screams the general, and looses the whole pack of wolfhounds on him. He hunted him down before his mother's eyes, and the dog tore the child to pieces. I believe the general was later declared incompetent. Um, even goes on, he is outraged at what people do. It's not God, it's his world. And he says on 245, I do not finally want the mother to embrace the tormentor because forgiveness is at the center of Christianity. Um, um, let's see, where am I? I don't want um, more suffering. And if the suffering of children goes to make up the sum of suffering needed to buy truth, then I assert beforehand that the whole of truth is not worth such a price. I do not finally want the mother to embrace the tormentor who led his dogs tear her son to pieces. She dare not forgive him. Let her forgive him for himself if she wants to. Let her forgive the tormentor her immediate maternal suffering, but she has no right to forgive the suffering of the child who was That is, he was innocent. So even if she forgives him, he was the one. It's indirectly pointing to Christ in all of this. So he says um, down a little bit, um, what I'm doing, it's not that I don't accept God, Alyosha, I just most respectfully return him the ticket. This is from the world. Um, <clears throat> Christ talks about, Ivan, I'm going to make this short, Ivan says to him, if there were one innocent child, and by taking the life of that one innocent child, this is the bottom of 245, you, you were get empowered to create a peaceful world. You could be the architect of it. Would you do it? And Alyosha says no. Because he's got Christ on his mind, and it brings Ivan to the point of telling the Grand Inquisitor story. That's where I'm, I'm going to... I want to just give a brief summary and then leave you with some questions. I was hoping to get to it today when we have it. Here's my questions. You know that Ivan... This is a really important chapter. Ivan tells the story of a day, a night, when Christ returns to Earth... Um, during the Inquisition in Seville, Spain, the Inquisitor has just led, um, overseen the execution of almost a hundred heretics the day before. Christ comes and he appears and he performs a number of miracles. He cures a man who's blind. Um, people want to touch him. They, they're carrying out a, the body of a dead girl in a casket when he arrives and they, they say raise him and he does, or the, the girl. The Grand Inquisitor comes out at that moment and sees him and tells his soldiers to take him, puts him in jail. That night he visits him and Ivan tells the story of the argument that the Grand Inquisitor presents to Christ. And the argument's basically this. I, I want to go over this now that we're finally here. He says that Christ faced three temptations. They were all miracles, all of them. The fact that he did them was a miracle, first thing. That was a miracle in itself because he said, Nobody 
thinking about the world could have come up with those temptations. Not unless you understood everything there was to know about man. The first temptation you remember is Christ has been um, not eating for 40 days. He says, turn these stones into bread. He says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word from the mouth of God. That is, give us this day our daily bread. doesn't mean just bread, it's the word of God. That we're supposed to feed our bodies, but the greater food is. That's the first. The second is, he takes him to the temple and says, throw yourself down, because your angels will catch you. And Christ says, um, the second thing is that God has said, you don't tempt um, the Lord your God. Um, you don't presume, you don't presume on God. You don't do stupid things assuming he's going to rescue. Rescue is not in his mind. And the third temptation was um, to go up on a mountain and say, here's all the earth. You can have power over all of it if you will serve me. And he quotes God saying, um, the commandment is um, to, to serve only the Lord thy God, no other gods. Now here's my question, because I want to look at this. I'm not going to spend a lot of time, but, but I want to get to this. Um, each of those temptations, Ivan argues, shows how weak men are. And yet Christ um, denied, refused the temptations to, be give, to give in to them. Um, as Ivan puts it, apparently without knowing how weak man was. And the church has acknowledged that fact and done things to protect man against that weakness because he doesn't have the strength to do what Christ did. This was a God. So he's basically justifying what in, in the way that he presents it as the Catholic Church and the wrong that it's committed from its beginning, that it's become Rome. I want to go into all of this because it's, it's really important in this whole church state thing. But, so a couple of questions here. What do those temptations show us about man? What is, I, what is Yvonne making clear to us from the way that he writes that chapter? Just look at it again. What does he show us about man? What does he show us about Christ? Why did Christ have to face those? Um, is his representation of the Catholic Church accurate? Um, if it isn't in any way, why does he do that? This is Ivan, it's not Dostoevsky, it's not, but Ivan has that view. What, where does that view come from? So I want to get clear on the Grand Inquisitor. This is close to the center of the book. There are the three temptations, and as, as Ivan presented, those three temptations reveal everything there is to know about us as human beings. So what do we learn about ourselves from what Christ does here? Okay. So, see you next week. Wow. Keep, I hope you enjoy your reading. This is a really great book. Yes. You have to read it. I'm not kidding. You have to read this book. Yes. You, you have to get involved with these people. The, the, the torturing experiences they're going through. You have to, in order to appreciate what Bill says he's doing. Boy, I was um, kind of at the part later on with Demetri when he goes completely nuts after... You know, whenever he goes to see when he's trying to get the money, what are you talking about? Oh, man? when he's um, when he's when he did the deal with the um, tried to kill, he got accused of killing his father, and all that craziness he was going through. I mean, my gosh, it was madness.
You're talking about after he left his father with blood on his hands?